What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about creativity, but we're talking about it from the kind of psychological angle, talking about how to boost creativity, especially by avoiding tropes, by avoiding the same old worn out ideas, by putting your designer brain into a new mode, looking at things from new angles, looking at things from different perspectives and bringing people alongside you to kind of help you understand and, and see different things that maybe you didn't even realize were there, how to do research and, and dive into a topic so that you can have more creativity, not less. And I'm talking to Jason Perez, a professional psychotherapist and a licensed clinician, a guy that has spent his entire career working with people and, and trying to figure out the brain and how it works and how to help people have better lives. And he's also a game designer. And so we talk about just that intersection of what does it look like to maximize your brain power, how to change your brain in different ways, how to kind of get, get over the natural, natural laziness of our brains and how we have a tendency to kind of default to that lowest common denominator. And what does it look like to put all this together to boost creativity, to have more creative ideas and better games? In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Jason Perez. So Jason Perez, really glad to have you here. Excited to chat with you about creativity, how to boost it, how to come at it from different angles, how to overcome maybe some creative blocks that designers often run into. And the reason I want to chat with you because is because you are a, a licensed uh, psychotherapist. You're a licensed social worker. You're also now a signed game designer, which is new since the last time you were on the show. So congrats on that. And you you come at things from a, a science background, but also at the intersection of a gamer and a game designer. And so I thought it would be really cool just to chat about how our brains work, how creativity works and how things, you know, what are some things we can do as designers to make better games that we're not just constantly putting out the exact same, oh, it's, a, it's another, it's another deck builder. It's another worker placement, except, except this time it has this, you know, tiny change, which, which you know, it is what it is. Sometimes that Sometimes as a publisher, you just put out another game because you got to make payroll. But I think anybody listening to this is wanting to make a game that is interesting and unique and different without being necessarily industry changing. Like that's really hard to do, like something so innovative that no one's ever seen it before. I think there's that kind of happy medium. But anyway, really excited to have you here. And so when we're talking about creativity, give me just some some background, like as a guy that's gone through school, you've got degrees, you've learned about the brain, just tell me your perspective on the sciencey kind of side of things as far as creativity, and then we'll dive into more of the design-related stuff. I am, as you said, a licensed clinical social worker. I am a psychotherapist, and uh, I work with people, uh, and I am a specialist in what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. So my deal is the brain, and my deal is the active thinking 
that can, and in a clinical sense, kind of get people tripped up, right? Uh, and it's usually a, you know, as I go through my therapy more and more, it's like a, a kind of a lack of creativity, a lack of uh, vision, you know, and uh, most of my people who come in, depression, anxiety, or whatever it is, a lot of it comes from whatever has it has like brought on kind of a myopia, brought on, you know, kind of, you know, they, they, they get very tunnel vision-y. Uh, when you get stressed, you get very tunnel vision-y. So it's like shutting down of the possibilities, which is what creativity is, kind of like the broadening of vision and possibility in the brain. Uh, so I've, I've been doing that for years. That's not just writers and artists and designers. That's just people in general, the creativity of life, right? As far as like seeing options in your job or options in your relationships, it's all that stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you come in in your job and you're like so many of my clients, they're like, I feel stuck in my life, right? And so much of that is uh, not seeing the options, you know, and that's where, you know, and that's where a creative mind, and that's where, uh, you know, the intersection of what, you know, talk about psychology and life and games and stuff. The intersection is at a, well-functioning, broad vision brain, right? So that's what my professional life in terms of my day job that I get paid to do. Uh, and also, you did not mention, I'm a culture consultant uh, in gaming. Uh, as you know, uh, I did the retheme of Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, last it's, time you were coming on the show, I think you were still in the middle. I think you were still figuring out like all the ins and outs of what was going on there. And so, yeah, that's another thing we can chat about here in just a minute as far as design is like how to take something that is established that has been around for a long time. Look at it with new eyes, change some things around. Yeah, I'm excited to chat about that. That's exactly, and that folds in, right? So, like, how did so what goes wrong in these kind of like themes that kind of recur over and over, and over again? Uh, I, I I would submit a lack of creativity, a lack of vision, a lack of just kind of like broad, broader thinking. Uh, what I and in the board gaming world with that we call those tropes. So tropes being just you know well-worn ideas that get used over and over and over again. They're leaned upon and all that kind of thing. Now, that's not like mental illness. I mean, that's a different kind of stuckness. But I would suggest that they're the, the common factor between like an anxious, depressed mind, a person who feels stuck in life, and a person who is stuck in tropes or in the familiar, that's not dissimilar. And the approach is generally, and this is the, the approach that I take in my cultural consulting, I like to say, this isn't about like doing it my way. This isn't about like me dictating like, you know, Gestapo style, what you should do. It's about, okay, let's broaden this out. What could this be? What are you trying to say? And how are the familiar tropes kind of roping you into saying it only certain ways? And how can we blow those tropes out and broaden things out and, you know, kind of bring, breathe some new life into your design? Gotcha. Briefly explain what it means to consult culturally, because I know there's people listening to the show that probably don't quite understand what that means. And and I, there's also people online that think they know what that means. <laughs> that maybe don't. And I've read it. and I'm like, I, I think you're a little bit off. So explain that from your perspective, what that means. Right. I, I glanced at it, but I'll, I'll definitely kind of uh, more than happy to get into it. Uh, so it is about those tropes. Uh, so the misunderstand, well, the misunderstanding is that it's again, I'm I'm telling people what to do, uh, so that the game is quote unquote not offensive, right? Or um, it's it's basically like for kids, you know, a, a nice safe, you know, thing, and, and all. Uh, it's safe that, that that word gets kind of thrown out of bounds. Like, okay, well, the, if the game is safe, then it's for children. It's for this, you know, that where's the grit? Where's the this? Where's the that? And that's that is not what we do, right? Uh, a, a good cultural consultant and I really aim for that. Uh, is very attentive to when a game is trying to represent people. And most games represent people, even the fictional ones, people. <laughs> you know, when we, even when we do fictional stuff, even when it's like animals, 
uh, even when it is space salience or whatever it is, if you're, you know, using analogs from real life, right? And, you know, so like Star Trek was famous for this stuff. They, you know, the, the, the Klingons were based on Soviet era and the Ferengi were based on the, the, the creator's understanding at the time of like Middle Eastern uh, cultures and everything. They, these are explicit. That was explicit, but like they, they leaned into it, but we all do it. They're all, we're all boring from like real world ideas. So like, are you borrowing in a way that is authentic and true uh, to the origin culture or are you borrowing tropes? And the tropes are flat. Tropes are well-worn. Tropes are usually kind of filtered through a Western gaze and some stuff can sneak in. Some stuff that's not comfortable, some stuff that just makes people, you know, uh, uncomfortable. So, you know, I guess uh, taking from... You know, so like, uh, what's a, what's a trope? Uh, just, a, just an unassociated trope, right? So like the chainmail bikini, uh, in a, in a in a dungeon crawler, right? So like, if you have a woman in a in a board game, the tendency, the overwhelming tendency, because of who plays games, is to have the buxom wench with the cleavage and the barely armored and all that kind of stuff. And you know, you can say that's fiction, that's great, and you know, it's whatever, it's harmless, it's harmless. It's not harmless to people who, for whom that is not comfortable. They want to see themselves in games. Everyone wants to see themselves in games. And if you're a woman and you want to see yourself in a game, all you see is, you know, busting out cleavage and all that kind of thing, at least in the popular titles. Uh, so a cultural consultant will look at those little bits, and it doesn't have to be that, you know, LGBTQ, different, different communities around the world, and just, you know, give a flag to the author, say, look, this is what people see. You know, this is what I know. That's what you see. You don't see a problem. From our perspective, we see an issue. How can we? And this is the creativity part. How can we turn two D into three D? Not how can we get rid of it. Not how can we cancel it. That's the big misunderstanding. How can we turn this trope that you used and told and 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 turn turn it into something creative and turn it into something resonant and turn it into something authentic. That is exactly what we want to do as a culture consultant. Gotcha. Because I feel like I feel like sometimes it gets. I've seen, unfortunately, some people who claim to be cultural consultants who take on maybe a little bit of that, telling you what to do. That they're coming at it as a you need to listen to me because I'm the expert, and if you don't, I'm going to drag you online. Like I've seen that, unfortunately, but I've also seen the complete opposite, where people have no understanding, where they think, oh. So you're saying if I'm a straight white dude, then I can't make a game about X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, that's not, no, not exactly. That's not what we're saying. We're saying be intentional about making a game about X, Y, and Z, especially if it's about a culture that you have no, under <clears throat> like you read a book. Okay, that's cool. Like, but I heard this quote a while back and I love it. It's, you can't read the label from inside the bottle. Understanding that you're inside the bottle and to bring in other people, whether you're, you know, you're going out and hiring them or, or at the very least have some people around you that can look at stuff and you'll listen to them. They'll tell you the truth and, you know, maybe come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, whatever. And, and just be intentional about it, especially if you're making a product. Because to your point, if you have a game that a certain percentage of gamers can't see themselves playing, they can't see themselves in it. Well, you're potentially limiting the market reach of that game. So is that worth it to you? I mean, if it is fine, okay, do your thing. But if you're wanting, and more and more, especially, you know, women and people from different backgrounds are coming into the hobby. Well, if you want to make a game that appeals to them, that they would want to buy and want to play and want to give away as gifts, I don't know, maybe, maybe be aware of that. <laughs> because right, yeah. we're, not, we're not talking about race, gender. We're talking about money in a lot of this. It's like, this is, mm -hmm. these are marketing decisions. These are business decisions right. more than just 
doing it because it's a right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Like it, at the very least, even if you're the kind of person that you just don't care, well, do you, do you at least care about making more money off of your game? So <laughs> I'm trying to get people to understand, like you don't have to be this certain political slant, this certain cultural, whatever. Do you want to make more, more money? Do you want to sell more games? And a lot of that comes down to, and I want to talk to you about Puerto Rico in just a second, but any follow-up on that? Because I think you're, you're in the same boat of just trying to get publishers and game designers to understand, like, this is, it's not black, white, What it's green. <laughs> it's green that we're talking about. Yeah, I, okay. So there's a bunch of different, like, threads there. So uh, there is the, you know, you don't want to offend people, quote, unquote. And I don't like that word. I, I, I like, if you want to offend people, like do so intentionally. Don't just do so unintentionally, which a lot, that happens a lot where it's like, okay, you put in a trope because it's easy, some space trope or whatever, and you know, and then that offends somebody, but you didn't mean it. And that, that, that's, that's like a, a complete waste of time. Everybody's upset. You're upset. I'm upset. And blah, blah. Uh, you know, that that's as a culture consultant, we, if at the very least I can help a career to do that, that's going to happen. Um, there are, there have been some times where I will point out some kind of oopsie in a game that can potentially be an issue, but the creator will come back and say, this is a core part of what I want to say. And thank you very much for helping me anticipate the kind of things I have to answer, but I'm going to forge ahead and go with this. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'm glad that I was able to help you. And that person, again, this isn't about like guilting or shaming. I'm, I'm anti-guilt and shame. Uh, so, and that's, that's a, a, a thing too. So, Really, though, and this is kind of gets back to the heart of what we want to talk about here. It's so much of my approach is about incurring creativity. Uh, and let me use an example. I've used this in a video. This was like two years ago, so people don't remember. <laughs> uh, but I love this example. So, I, and this is a, a total left field example, but it totally um, applies. So, have you heard, my friend Gabe, of the Song of Ice and Fire? The song, the. Uh... Well, it was the book series and turned into the Game of Thrones TV yeah, show. Yeah. That was your yeah, exactly. The, the yeah, grand yeah. poobah, George R. R. Martin, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so he wrote the original Game of Thrones, the, the novel, 1992, like way back. What, what is a cultural consultant at that point? <laughs> that doesn't a thing. But so, you know, so he, okay, so he's writing his book and he has this character who is a little person named Tyrion Lannister. Uh, and if you read the book, and it's still there, like they haven't like edited this out or anything. Um, if you read the original book, the very first book, and the very first scene that Tyrion Lannister is in, uh, what Jon Snow that you, you know you, you're aware of the characters, right? Jon Snow is like dour; he's like looking at you know looking off to wherever, and then Tyrion is sitting on a ledge on a high building, and he jumps off the ledge, bounces off the uh, an awning, does a somersault, and lands on his feet, and you know kind of does, does a little bow and all that kind of thing, and. So it's like, okay, then he goes into the whole like you know, capering fool thing. So then what happens with so the, the book gets released and there's a lot of little people, you know, uh, folks who have dwarfism who read the book and they're like, what the F, what is this? And basically the idea being that George Martin leaned on a trope, the trope of the capering little man. How did, what did George Martin play when he grew up? He played with, you know, halflings in D&D. Uh, he watched uh, professional midget wrestling with, you know, the midgets like Sky Low Low and they're calling like capering and, and moving around and stuff. That was his only experience of folks with dwarfism, the little nimble person. And so what they, you know, he, so George Martin tells a story. He got letters from people saying, back when people wrote letters, uh, saying that, that that's not the experience of being a dwarf. Most of the time it is pain. You know, it, there's a lot of back pain, foot pain, heart trouble getting around, and 
on top of the physical pain, there's the social pain of being expected to be the dancing fool. We call that stereotype threat. Uh, so it's like, you know, if I'm not capering and if I'm not jumping around, then I get treated worse. Uh, you know, a person would say that. And, you know, so George Martin had no idea, no idea. Why would he of this? So then what does he do? He goes into the second book, the third book, the fourth book, and he completely changes Tyrion's character. At that point, he's massaging his feet. At that point, he's rubbing his back. He, like he's constantly like rubbing his legs. And, and so what that did was by having people's life experience kind of brought to him, he was able to not cancel, quote unquote, Tyrion. In fact, he went the other way. He made Tyrion more interesting. It unlocked creativity. And it unlocked this whole dynamic with his father because his father became the one that did the stereotype threat thing to Tyrion. It's like, okay, now uh, you know, Tyrion, Tywin expected Tyrion to be the fool. And Tyrion's like, no, 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 my legs hurt. And Tywin's like, you're not my son. And, and Tyrion's like, you're not my father. The whole family drama came up. So using real life feedback and real experience and authenticity to inspire creativity in one's work. And the best cultural consulting that I've ever done with a board game replicates that. It's like, okay, here we go. Like you have this in your game. This is what it would look like more in a resident to whatever community. And it's like, oh, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. It's, it's, it's a fantastic process when it goes right. And it folds into exactly what the subject of the, of the podcast is. So I'm happy to talk about it. Right. And to your point, what you said earlier, it's, it's literally going from 2D to 3D. Because now we go from, oh, it's just a stereotypical, you know, little person to, no, 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 it's deeper. He's a person. He's a real, you know, it's a it's verisimilitude, which is, you know, a word that gets brought up in, in the English circles. And all that means is this could be real, right? Even if you're reading Game of Thrones and there's dragons and, and magic and all sorts of craziness, like, you know, it's not real. It's fantasy. But there's verisimilitude in the way the characters act towards each other, the way they respond, the things they think, the things they do. You go, oh, this could be real. And in game design, especially if you're a thematic designer. Now, if you're designing abstracts, oh, you know, okay, <laughs> whatever. But if you're designing something that has theme and you've got flavor text, and you've got narrative and scenarios and all sorts of stuff, you can lean into these things. And, and all of a sudden, players get lost. They kind of forget they're playing a game. They still know they're playing a game, but they're immersed. And they're, they're all of a sudden, it, it feels like they're doing whatever it is on, on the table. And you can, even in the brain, like I've seen uh, Ted talks and things talk about, especially like Dungeons and Dragons, where when players are in that zone, the brain is making memories in the same way that it makes memories when you do things for real. It's like the brain is just like, Oh yeah, you really did slay a dragon. Well, well, no, but it makes memories as if you did. And so all, all that to say, Again, we're not trying to tell people, oh, you have to design like this. And if you're if you're this person, you can't do that. It's not what we're saying. We're saying you can be more creative. You have more space. You have more interesting options if you kind of understand the bigger picture of what's going on. Yeah. And if you are attentive to whatever tropes you're using. And um, it, so Bruno Ferduti wrote a very influential um, essay on this. This was like uh, about Katana in 2010. And he was talking about board games as a field of... It's all tropes. <laughs> it's all tropes all the way down. Like it, you're, you're you're playing a game. Most of the game occurs in the person's mind, and the 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 mechanisms are more like a prompt to the mind. So he designed simpler games. So he's definitely on a tip. And his big quote was, you know, board games aren't really the medium for complex tropes. Like go to another medium for that. Like uh, board games, they rely on simple tropes. 
And so, you know, you're basically choosing from among simple tropes. And my thing is, okay, as long as you're choosing from among simple tropes, they don't have to be the same worn tropes. You know, there's all sorts of ways, like there, there's millions of tropes. There's millions of ways which you can kind of represent something quickly, right? Um, do we need to represent, you know, purple <laughs> space? Like as soon as I see purple, I'm immediately, okay, that's a space creature or whatever it is. Uh, do I really need to see the chain of bikini? Do I really need to see if, I, if I'm uh, playing a game in the Middle East, do I need to see, you know, camels? You know, there's a lot more in the Middle East than camels. <laughs> I mean, you can just kind of go on down the line of the different, you know, cultures and, uh, you know, but settings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so you can you can use the tropes, but like, are the tropes uh, well worn and just you know uncreative and just like you know taken from stock, or are you kind of making new ones? And then that you know that 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 if you do it well enough, it'll give gamers that little like left turn. It's like, ooh, I'm doing something a little bit different, and that's where you know you can really get somebody. You can sometimes it'll miss, and that's okay. Uh, as long as you're trying and get thing, people to really hooked in your game. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious though, because I've seen, unfortunately, sometimes writers, movie makers, TV show people, game designers too, they go almost too far the other way. So for instance, if Tyrion Lannister, um, that type of a character, right? A little person who's around three feet tall and you put him in a basketball movie and he, for no reason, can, can dunk a basketball. He can jump, you know, 70 inches in the air and we're, there's no magic. There's no fantasy here. And try and present that I feel like also we can go too far the other way. And so it's almost finding that spot in the middle that you still, cause that, that breaks the verisimilitude as well. Where you're like, well, hold on now. Now I'm watching it. Now I'm watching a TV show. Cause that was so ridiculous and un, so impossible <laughs> that you gotta be careful of that too. And so can you speak on that too? Like, do you ever find yourself in, in your consulting kind of having to rein somebody back in and be like, okay, you're, you're maybe trying too hard. You're, you're subverting a little too far. Let's, let's pull it back in a little more believable territory. Um, not really. I mean, I think that in board gaming, it's so... That's not the issue, huh? Well, it's so tight and competitive, right? You know, like there's such a, a small window for people to make and to create and all that kind of stuff. I think it is 99% more of like, okay, people... Uh, okay, I, it has to be space or it has to be, you know, combating gods or it has to be, uh, you know, this kind of like well of 10 things. Old West. Oh, I mean, how many Old West things have I consulted on? Uh, a ton, right? And it's like, so... The old West is full of just awful tropes. Uh, so you know the the savage native and the you know the the damsel in distress and the stagecoach and I mean I could go on forever and ever for that. But that. Uh, so you know I, I so yeah that would be like it would be the other way. And again I'm not saying don't do the tropes. I'm not I'm not saying like don't do games about the old West. I mean I would it, <laughs> I would I would love that to like explore different things. But I get the reality of like people they want to you know explore the familiar settings and i get that but like okay if you're gonna explore the same settings if you're gonna explore the same general trope let's just do it a different way you know does uh the damsel need to be in distress maybe the damsel could be driving the car <laughs> or uh you know maybe the savage or the quote-unquote savage native could be you know the only trader in town and you know the person that keeps the keeper of knowledge and lore there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of turn some of these tropes in their head uh, and that's kind of what i want to encourage people and my and also uh, i'm a big history guy so it's like, okay, let's borrow from like real history and, you know, look at someone's life, look at, you know, uh, the, these people that really existed. Like, you know, most of cowboys were black and Latino. We call them vaqueros. Uh, so like, okay, can we get some look in the history that, have you know, these people that have been kind of covered up and now all we think is like the John Wayne white guy cowboy. It's like, okay, let's go back in the history, recover some of these things and maybe that opens up a, a whole rich field of 
creativity in your game. So that, right. that's the I mean, kind of thing that I, I like to look at. Absolutely. I mean, the word buckaroo is just a, a messed up pronunciation of the Spanish word. <laughs> that's, where, that's where it comes from, you know? Right. And to your point, you know, and, and lasso, into, rodeo, these are all, these are all Spanish names, Spanish words. Exactly. Exactly. And looking into well, what actually happened, you know, unfortunately we, we have a tendency to just play a, a big, long game of telephone with the history and with the truth. And anytime people are playing telephone, you know, it, it only takes two or three people playing telephone and you've already messed stuff up. Well, how about a thousand people? How about over a course of, I don't know, 2000 years, everybody just kind of playing telephone with the truth and the history of things. And now we're in a place of literally the opposite, you know, and- that's a great way to put it. It's like, imagine you're in a situation where all you're playing with is the end of a telephone game, you know, and at the end of the day, like people are people. And this is another one thing you wanted me to talk about, which is kind of the brain science of it. I mean, the brain is an energy saving mechanism. The brain it, there's a big world. There's a lot going on. <laughs> billions and billions and billions of stimuli. Every second are hitting our head. Our brains are always desperate to find the quickest way in which we can interpret something and kind of like put it in its place and move on. Right. And we're always trying to find little tricks, little habits to kind of save time and save energy. That is what the brain does. And that is what a trope does. That's what a stereotype does. It's what a habit does. You know, the brain is constantly looking to habituate itself to stuff. So we can like, okay, I'm not thinking about this because I can think about these other 10,000 things. Uh, you know, like anybody who's ever, you know, driven on their way to work, but they have to go somewhere else, uh, you know, you're going to lean towards going to work because <laughs> the brain is going to take you in that direction. You can think of that metaphor as this is what you do if you're not attentive in the creative process. That like if you're going into uh, game design, if you're going into making a game, but you've told stories in whatever medium that you are in a certain way, then your brain's going to be habituated telling the story once again in that same way. And that's where it becomes really important to be attentive to that tendency of the mind to just go with the, the, the normal and the familiar because of its, its energy saving and really try to step back and be like, okay, what am I doing? And this, I like to talk about it this way because you know, again, speaking to your point about cultural consulting, it's like, okay, am I just calling a bunch of people racist to that that reproduce the tropes? Absolutely not. It's it's not about that. It's about like, okay, um, your energy saving brain has developed a bank of tropes given to us by a culture which does have ugly history in it. And because we want to save time and energy, we've used those tropes over and over again. And those tropes are, are the result of a big telephone game like you had described before. So all we're doing as culture consultants is encouraging people to be like, okay, this is what the brain is doing. This is, this is the bank of tropes that you are relying upon. And I get why you did it. And so can we please think about A, what impact, how people receive those tropes on different than the other end? And B, is there a way to kind of complexify? Is there a way to you know, blow that out, be creative, turn 2D into 3D? That, that's kind of what the process is all about. Right. And it, what you're talking about there is like our brain's kind of the lowest common denominator, like always trying to expend the least amount of energy as possible. Well, that's why people read headlines, not articles. It's why they see something online that, if, especially if it, if it confirms a bias they already had, then they go, yep, I, I'm that's true. You know, without actually looking deeper, they can hear something that might be ludicrous. It might be absolutely just ridiculous, but they'll just take it at face value because their brain's like, oh, okay. And it's just like, all right, moving on to the other 12 things that I've got going on right now. And I said this on a show recently, but you know, our brains are supercomputers, but they only have one megabyte of RAM. Yeah. So you, you can only right. think about one thing, focus on one thing at a time. Right. And so to make it more efficient, right. 
that our brain is just boom right there and moving on to the next thing. And, and you'll believe something wild and then it'll get like our brains are also really bad at like memory. Like memories are, are so screwed up and they find that in, in like witness testimonies and things like that, where they can compare it to video footage and things are like, Oh wow, this is like, you're way off. <laughs> like you thought you knew, you knew moment by moment, but our brains are so bad at holding ideas, really good at having ideas, terrible at holding them. And so that's nothing. It's like, even our own memories betray us, you know? And so if you think, Oh yeah, I grew up playing baseball and this is how I remember it. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. it was like that. Maybe not, <laughs> you know? And so just something to be aware of. And also, even like the cultural, it's not even, or it's not only deep kind of heavy stuff. It's also things that might just be humorous and embarrassing. I'll give you an example. So I'm working on Robomon and get the, back, get all back the towns. I, wanna, I, I backed oh it. Gosh, so come man. on, let's go. Uh, and, um, uh, literally every day, someone <laughs> is working on that game. And I have, I have meetings all throughout the week with different people who are on the team and like, it's moving forward. It's just such a big game. But one thing about it, all the town names are based on metals, kind of like Pokemon, you know, where it's like, all are colored, whatever. So it's all metals and or metal related things. And so I had a town in the game called Slagville. And Slag, if you're not familiar, is like the the waste product of different metal processes and welding and things like that. And I was like, oh, Slagville, that sounds good. Well, my uh, main artist, who is from the UK, as soon as I told him Slagville, he burst out laughing. And he's like, you're not serious, are you? Yeah. I was like, what? what? What's wrong? Do you, do you know what Slag means in the UK, Jason? I don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let listeners podcast. look it up. They'll have a fun little Google search on that one. Uh, it's not like a cuss word, but it ain't a, it ain't a family friendly right. term. Family and so, friendly. you know, again, just having other people on the team to go, Hey, let's, let's not do that one. Let's, uh, let's find a different uh, opportunity there. And we had a good long chuckle when he sent me, you know, a link and he's like, well, here, here here's what it means. And like, Oh, okay. That's funny. But it's, it's also keeping you from silly, embarrassing things or, just things that pull people out of the the moment. Um, I've, I've used icons in the past that, for instance, a battery. Well, the normal, like stereotypical trope of a battery icon, that type of battery wasn't invented until like the early or mid nineties. And so when I used that icon on a game that was set in the eighties, that pulled a handful of people out of the moment. They're like, wait a minute, that battery doesn't exist in 1983. I'm like, first of all, Come on, <laughs> but they had a, they had a point, you know. And so it's it's not just these deep, heavy things. It's it's everything, and just having people there to just see it and with different eyes and see it with just see it in a way you don't. I guess is the main thing. Mm -hmm. And so you want to talk about Puerto Rico? I know we're going to be my full time. I'll, I'll get into a little bit of that. Um, yeah. So so okay. So the the Puerto Rico as the old game, right? And and I want to kind of put it through the lens of what we're talking about here. Classic, like, one of the, the greatest games of all time. It's an it's an amazing game. I, I you know yeah. I, I, I not the, not my opinion. Just in general, so a lot of people say I've played it. It was fine, but a lot of people it's like one of their it's one of the games that brought a lot of people into the hobby. So when you were tackling this, I mean you you were like you were like changing Mount Rushmore to some people. <laughs> like there was some there was some thoughts that That's people right. had. Right. Anyway, just to give people context. Okay, yeah. Um, so. I mean, I, I, it's one of those things where, like, I wasn't asked, right? I, I, I took it on on my own uh, because it was a big conversation at the beginning of 2021. And like, so, okay, so 
I know how these games get themed, and I've kind of known that the entire time. Like, and, and Puerto Rico is not the only one. I mean, there's like Puerto Rico was one of the original ones, but there's you know you got the Goas and Navigador, and and I'm just from my own history studies and from my own I, you know my college education. You know, and, and we call it Orientalism. We call it uh, you know the when 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 a Western looks when 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 a white male European Western center looks out at the world, and like the the, the author talked about it in terms of like the East, right? The, the West and the East, but it applies for me as like the center and the margin. So it's like the center is the white male center. And then every, basically at the further you get from the center, the more it becomes like exotic sized and flattened and, you know, kind of you know, romanticized, all that kind of thing. Uh, so Puerto Rico and most of the Latin America is flattened and exoticized in very similar ways. Uh, tropified, if we, if we want to use that word, uh, in terms of, okay, you know, navigators, brave and true, cross the ocean blue. Uh, and, you know, it was an easy process of like, okay, the land was basically empty and, you know, they, they farmed and tilled and they, uh, yay, you know, all these people. Like anytime you see like one of the statues of like, you know, Ponce de Leon and, you know, Pizarro, like it, it's all that whole simplified, um, you know, na tropified narrative is just like baked into Latin American culture. We all know it. So that gets exported back to Europe uh, and there's cultural interchange. Like the, the, the tropes kind of multiply, again, the game of telephone. <laughs> so, you know, we all, everybody's absorbing the kind of same tropified idea. And there it is. It's right. I'm, I'm playing it. And that, that was a problem. Like, okay, uh, I'm playing this trope and I know the trope is BS because I'm, I, I know a lot about the history and my culture and that thing. Uh, so, so it's like, okay, um, female mechanism, it's, you know, the, 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 the theme was just slapped on. You know, I, I, you know, Andreas C. Fell, I remember reading about it. He like he wanted to make a game about the new world, but then that was it. <laughs> he just stopped right there. <laughs> I want to make a game about the new world. Okay, what tropes do I know about the new world? I know about farming and gathering and exploring all that kind of thing. Great. Uh, so Puerto Rico emerged. What I did with that game was turn 2D into 3D. Period. Point blank. End of story. Uh, I, I, I know what a flatness is. Uh, so it's like, okay, how can I go back into the mechanisms? And, and that was a big thing. I didn't change a single mechanism. Like that, that was really important. I knew they would want it without even them telling me uh, that, that they wouldn't want to change a thing. So like, what what else can this game be? Okay. So I looked at the center, the central actor. Who's the central actor is the colonizer. Uh, who's a merchant and who's a farmer. It's an agricultural game. So it's like, okay, can I find another farmer, central actor in Puerto Rican history? And then kind of from there, build the game out. And I looked. <laughs> it took a long time. Puerto Rican agri uh, agriculture history is very difficult because we've basically always been a colony to this day. We're a colony of the United States. So, you know, I looked at the period before. I looked at, you know, some kind of like, you know, Afrofuturist stuff. I looked at way back in the distant past with the Indians and all, the Taino natives and everything. And I settled on, I read some books. Um. I settled on a farmer in 1897, a very specific date between the empire of the Spanish and the empire of the Americans. So like there was this little window of time where it was possible to imagine that Puerto Rico would be independent. Like we didn't know that Americans would uh, invade. So it's like, okay, wow. So I'm going to be like, boom, boom, done. It's like, I'm going to focus on this, this actor. And I read about him and I saw pictures and I went to museums and I talked to people and I was able to build out a whole re-envisioned world based on that real person turning 2D into 3D. And I got creative. 
You know, I, I looked at, the, you know, with different perspectives within the bounds of the mechanisms. I, there was only so much that I can do. Like the biggest thing that I wanted to do that I couldn't was pay the workers. So I'd love to have put in a little bit of like just to tell the tell the um, the player that like, OK, you are not a slaver. You are paying these workers. But they were and I knew that they were that they would would do upset the game balance because like these are it's a very tightly designed game. So I just you know, work <laughs> uh, and try to be creative. And hopefully, you know, I told a, a resident story and I've had, I mean, I've had nothing but great feedback, nothing but either I've had great feedback or dumb feedback. I haven't had like truly like this is bad feedback. It, it's either like people love it or they're like judging it based on some kind of like woke Rico standard. And I don't listen to that. I've, yeah. I've yet to have. Without even like knowing what you did or why. Like they're just again right, they're reading right. the headlines kind of and then they're the making a judgment. Yeah. Like they're going off the trope of the SAW. Like they're going off their own lazy trope. Uh, I've I've yet to encounter anybody that said, "Okay, this is not a well rendered version of it," and I'm very proud of that. And what was the process? And this is it's all about the creativity process. I was creative by wanting to turn like by wanting to take tropes and subvert them and you know make them my own and tell different stories. So that's that's exactly what that process was. And just thinking from the gamer's perspective. As a player, doesn't it feel better to not be a slave owner? Doesn't it feel better to like be a person that that's positive, that's helping a, a community farmer? Like, the, I mean, my <laughs> right. basically my great grandfather could have been that. You know, I, right. I went into that whole thing. Right, and as a gamer, that feels better. Like, I all of a sudden I don't have to compartmentalize what was actually happening. I don't have to abstract that away. I can I can have a full verisimilitude style experience. And, and have an enjoyable one that I'm not having to pretend that some kind of shady, terrible, awful things were happening as they were, right? And so that's, that's another thing. Again, just putting yourself in the, the shoes of the person playing the game, right? What are they going to be thinking? And how can you go deeper? How can you tell interesting stories? Um, again, and, and, but it's also not, it's not just um, people that, you know, we would call marginalized or whatever. I'll give an example. I come from Alabama. Why is it? 99% of the time, maybe not 99, most of the time, people represented in movies, TV, games, whatever, from where I come from, they're racist, they're dumb, they're lazy, all these things. Are those kinds of people around? Absolutely. But to make that a trope is frustrating to me, right? And I bet everyone listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube, there's something about culture where someone has abstractified you, where you're from. And it's annoying and frustrating and bothersome. And you would be able to go on a rant about how it's wrong and how it's not like that. And that's a small group of people. That's a stereotype, whatever. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> like, be aware of that because it's everybody. Everybody on the planet is dealing with something yeah. like that. And to put yourself in that position or at least have other people that can help you. That's all we're saying. And yeah, then you can I, create a the, more interesting dynamic. What's the yeah, the, the old Fox comic, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, his whole bit was like, you won't want your brain surgeon to talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he made a lot of money off of the trope. He made, to be yeah, fair. exactly. Like he, he's turning, I mean, maybe a little bit too much because he didn't have much else to offer. But like the, the, the idea being that like he is, you paid money to see him and he's a successful person. And so it's like he's, he's trying to kind of highlight the tropes for people. Right. It's like, OK, uh, you know, and people are laughing. Ha ha ha. But like you know, at the end of the day, it's like I remember coming out of that, coming out of like, you know, watching that going, why wouldn't I want my solid surgery to talk like this? Does it matter? <laughs> you know, so and that and that's where you want you. And that's where the best use of a trope is when you get when you get people to think and you get people to kind of be a little bit more accepting and creative and, you know, a, a, you know, getting in the right direction in terms of that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I had a really good chat with Peter C. Hayward. This is a while back when he was working on this audio show and he had all these voice actors coming in and it was like a spaceship. And the guy that was doing the voice of the, of the ship, like the AI, the computer had this amazing voice, but he had a British accent. And I asked Peter, I was like, Hey man, why don't ships ever talk like me? <laughs> like you never, you never have a redneck AI on your ship. Why is that? Can we? And I was trying to push him. I was trying to get myself a job to be fair. But, um, but again, that's a way. And you got to do it right though. You can't, yeah. get what I was saying earlier, like you can't push it too far where it's silly. It can't be imitation. Like, it can't be, it can't yeah. be like a, a you know, a, a copy, you know, a, 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 what's, what's his face? Chadwick Bo- Yeah. Chadwick Boseman talked about this a lot because he did a lot of biopics when he was alive. Uh, he did the, you know, Thurgood Marshall. He did James Brown. He did Jackie Robinson. And he was very, he talked so much about like, when I'm representing an, another person, I do not want it to be an imitation. I do not want it to be a cheap knockoff. And it, with James Brown in particular, it's like super easy, hey, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, no, I, I have to. I, and what did he do? To, what did he do to kind of achieve what he achieved? Was spend time with the family and did, did his research and you know, uh, you know, practice, practice, and like to really just kind of hammer it home, like the nuances. Like there's so much that room available in terms of nuance. And it's like, okay, what emerged was something that felt resonant and felt real, you know, and we're not going to do that in a game. I understand like, we're not going to be like, you know, uh, do the research and all that kind of stuff, but you can do better than just the flat, ordinary, whatever. And speaking of the spaceship thing, like you never seen like a, a native person in a spaceship. You know, you've never seen, you know, as if like Native American history ended in 1897 and like there's nothing else for us. So it's like, no, 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 like we still exist. In fact, there's more of us now than there were at any point before European, you know, uh, it, what it, the, the, whatever the, we call it the conquest. Uh, so it's like, why can't we be in the flying in the stars? Why can't we be, you know, like you said before, a voice in the ship? I would love that. You know, like we, there should be all that stuff. In ships, it can't. It doesn't not just have to be like the same four or five, you know, body types and skin tones and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you can you can tell some very interesting stories. But back to I think maybe the main point overall is just be intentional, be aware, be aware how lazy your daggum brain is. Like I remember <laughs> yeah, this absolutely. when I was playing when I was playing football, we would do these sit ups, and you had to hold two 10 pound weights and a five. So you had to hold 25 pounds, but it was three plates. So it was always shifting and moving around. And it was so awful because you would have to like force yourself to like grab these things and do the sit-ups. Right. And your body would, would naturally, especially as you got tired, it would want to cheat. It would want to like curl up and go to the side and not go straight down and straight back up. Cause it was trying to be as efficient as possible, especially as you wore out and whatever. And you had to be so focused and so intentional and if I think about that, if I could be that intentional and focused on a sit-up, mm. maybe <laughs> maybe I can be focused and intentional on things that maybe matter a little bit more, right? But the main thing was your brain is constantly trying to take the easy way out. And don't let it. Don't let now there gets to a point you can't go to all the museums, you can't read all the books, you can't hire all the people, whatever. Like there comes a time you're just like, hey, this is what it is, and that's fine. But at least be intentional about what you're doing and form partnerships and if you're gonna if you're gonna do things about human beings there's there's no there's nothing to stop you from like partnering with other human beings and it's funny like you i'll post something like that on like a bgg forum and i'll get so much pushback oh you can't the the creator is independent and you want them to have the freedom to just create and you know now we have to submit it to the politburo and you know we have to check with 17 different people in order to make anything and it's like 
creativity is not just about like the Promethean solitary person that, you know, reaches ideas from on high. Matter of fact, if we trust that person, they're probably going to come up with the same old crap over and over again. You know, uh, you know, we're going to get the same white male lead. We're going to get the same damsel in distress. Uh, you know, like you trust people to their own devices, the single solitary person, and you'd be surprised how much the same gets reproduced over and over again. The, the, uh, the most creative stuff comes attached and comes in relationship and partnership with people who know. And I, I, I always like, you know, refer to like, you know, Star Wars, right? So, you know, if you're going to make a game or make a product that is resonant with Star Wars, wouldn't you want to talk to a, a couple Star Wars fans? Like if someone shows up with a cube Death Star, then all the Star Wars fans out there are going to go, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> why didn't you talk to one of us? And it's like, that's all we're asking in terms of a culture idea you know and even if you're even if it isn't like directly if you even if you're only doing animals or if you're only doing you know space creatures or whatever it is you're still taking from that bank that lazy bank of tropes you're still unconsciously grabbing from that well and it's worth you know people taking a look and going okay what are you grabbing how am i how are you representing it how can we turn 2d into 3d with your product that is the ultimate way to understand what we're doing Right. And that word you just said, product. I'm not making art. I'm making a product. Those are different things. Now they can kind of have some intersection. There can be, you know, some parallels and tandem, whatever. By the end of the day, I'm trying to make something that other people will hopefully buy and that I can pay some bills with. Like, and so when people get super upset, like you were saying earlier, like, oh, the creators should be free. Yeah, go for it. Feel free. They can do whatever they want. But as soon as you turn this into a product, productized, marketable thing, that's a whole nother, whole nother thing we got to be thinking about. And, and so I think there's just a misunderstanding there. I'm not trying to limit somebody's creativity. Uh, we're trying to, how do you make the best product for the market? And not that you have to, you know, feel like you got, you're boxed in by a certain group of people or political movement or what. That's not what we're saying. Uh, it's just being aware. Let's switch gears and talk about the value of putting yourself into a different box, so to speak, uh, where you're trying things to avoid, like, especially if you're a game designer, you probably have a tendency to design the same kinds of games. You know, if you really like Euro games, you're probably designing Euro games. Well, there can be some value in designing a party game. You know, you and I were talking before the we hit record about Vlada Shavadl, who has made some of the heaviest, most complicated games in the world. Mage Knight, right? Through the ages. Like games that take forever to set up and play and figure out and like rule books on top of rule books and understanding all this stuff. And he also made code names because he let his brain go into a new new place. And then that turned into one of the best party games, you know, uh, that, that's ever been made. And right. so there's yeah, so Galaxy Trucker, value. some like, you know, chaotic, you know, real time. Thing. And Space Alerts were actually one of my favorite games. I love Space Alerts. That co cooperative programming and, and chaotic. And the, that, same that same mind made Beijing another one of my favorite games. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, a great to, example. To get outside the, your own personal tropes that you've kind of like that your brain has just like, all right, it, the box has been checked. You know, as far as like what kind of games you make and, and themes and things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, so Aretha Franklin's song, Natural Woman, was co-written by a man. It's like, wait, what? You make me feel like a natural woman? 
was written by a dude? <laughs> well, I think, I think he was allowing himself to get into a new zone there and, and maybe see things through new eyes and have a different vision for things. And that turned into one of the you know most well-known songs ever made. And so well, there's a lot of salsa it. jams are written by German dudes, like, uh, like Scandinavian dudes. I mean, you, you'd like, you, like seriously, like you look at the liner notes of like a Mark Anthony or whoever else, and uh, you're going to see a bunch of, you know, names with 15 consonants that are from... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can't no, say that in Spanish. The human mind that don't work wonderful. in Spanish. Yeah. No, the Absolutely. human mind is wonderful. And it's very flexible when you can allow it to be. So, okay, how do you um, you know, prompt that creativity and kind of go left instead of right? And you know, it's not just game design. Like in life, you know, when I talk about you know, bringing it back to my psychotherapy, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to what you know we call shake the snow globe. You know, like you're, you're the, the snow is settled on the ground and there's not much happening. Sometimes you just need to kind of give it a, a shake and there's different like ways to do it. You know, uh, like this is this gets into like a little bit of life hack territory, but like, you know, brush your teeth with the wrong hand. You know, start doing things with your left hand or, or your right, if you're right handed, uh, if you're left handed, do it with your right hand. Like do things that are off handed, do the things that are, uh, you know, that challenge you. Like, you know, I, I, I was just recently doing some home improvement projects and I was starting to, you know, screw things with my left hand and it, it just, it matters. It, it does, it does different, like the different parts of the brain kind of wake up and, and shake it, shake itself a little bit. Uh, is the word so, plasticity, am I remembering right? Plasticity neuro, is the word Neuroplasticity. There? Yeah, neuroplasticity. Yes. You want to get yeah, that going. Talk about what that is. Cause that, that's what I've heard. I've heard several people talk about this now where you, like you're saying, using your left hand to do things, it literally creates new pathways and different things in your right. brain. Speak on that for a second. Correct. Uh, yeah. So neuroplasticity is the idea. When I talk about like the habit forming brain and the energy and the energy saving brain. So what that is, is neural pathways that are setting in and it actually gets way deep down into your brainstem. Uh, and your brainstem is the center of your habits, right? Uh, and they call it your lizard brain. And what, you know, what's, what's the idea with like lizards, right? Lizards, they need to routinize a lot of things because, you know, they need to find the watering hole and they need to find the mating area. And there's no time to like think about, oh, where'd it go? Where'd it go? No, you get, it gets in there, you habituate to it, you zip there towards there, you avoid the predators and all that kind of thing. So like this stuff is deeply coded. We're talking 500 million years at least of evolution of, uh, you know, a habit of the brain to routinize and, and get it to sink in there. Yet, what makes one of the things that makes mammals different this is a mammalian thing, but like humans can kind of turbocharge it, is that we can, with enough intentionality, actually change those familiar pathways. And you know, we make new neural connections, but we also uh, kind of shift the existing connections. So, if like if I make an association, this and this, you know, this is the way to the watering hole or whatever it is, and that becomes like a a, a simultaneous fire in the brain, then it's like okay. Um, now I'm thinking about going to watering hole, but then it's like this, 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 and this. And all of a sudden I've shifted that and I've, you know, created also all these like new pathways to do things. Um, I'm working with a woman right now who has very, very severe OCD, uh, very severe, like germophobic and could barely get out of bed and everything. And the science of OCD is that their neural pathways are sending what we call false signals, you know? So it's like, okay, they look at a, you know, anything and they see dirt. And they see germs and they see contamination. They, and like it could be anything. And they, their brain is sending that false signal. So the science is that we are trying to take advantage of the brain's neuroplasticity and do things. And sometimes it actually takes, you know, neurostimulation and, you know, um, electric you know, treatment and all that kind of stuff, magnets they've, they're using now, and reestablish different patterns so that the brain isn't sending that signal. 
so that when the person sees her slippers, when the person sees a handkerchief, they don't just immediately associate it with dirt and grime and danger. It's now, you know, whatever, something else that's more healthy. And we can all do that. We can all, like, I mean, my, my catchphrase is change your mind, you can change the world. That's the thing that I end all my podcasts with. And that's what that means. You change your mind, you change your, your, your literal neural pathways, the ways that you associate. And that's really what it is, is change your associations. So like, and that's what tropes are all about. So it's like, if I think Egypt and my association is a pyramid, I can retrain myself to be like, oh, Egypt, da, 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 da. and now I'm telling, you know, a broader story of whatever it is. Uh, and I can just go down the line for whatever, you know, Mexico is sombreros and, you know, Eskimos are like the, the big, whatever, the, the big coats and freezing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, no, there's plenty of Eskimos that are not, <laughs> you know, the different cultures and stuff. So like, and so neuroplasticity allows us literally to change the neurological firing that prompts those tropes. And on a, again, a physical level, we're, we're changing our brains in order to be able to make broader associations. Right. And we can, I mean, we can literally change our brains by simply, in our case, designing games differently than we have before or than other people have or leaning into themes differently. Like you can literally change your, change your brain chemistry by designing board games. And I find that to be a much more enjoyable way to do it. I've been brushing my teeth with my left hand <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's not nearly as fun as trying to, uh, to do different things creatively. I tell you what, but. And also again, like just in terms know. of the, I mean, like designing a game, writing a book, uh, it, like doing, taking on something that has like a lot of detail, a lot of spade work, like that, um, you can actually like enlarge certain parts of your brain just by that work. Uh, you know, the, um, some of the people that have like the, like the biggest memory cores, like a hippocampus is your memory core. Uh, and they've looked at this, like, you know, cab drivers actually have huge hippocampus because they have to know every single aspect of a city. They have to know when the, you know, the, the best times are. And if it's this time drive here, if it's that, and like the spatial memory, it actually takes a lot of, um, brain power to like spatial memory, like, as opposed to kind of like written word memory. Um, so like the, their physical brain, their memory centers are bigger because they are work literally working that out like a muscle. And when you do detail oriented work, like a game is, and we mentioned it before, I'm, uh, engaging my own game design now. Uh, I'd, I'll never do this again. This is intense. <laughs> there is so much little work that has to happen. Like if you change one thing, you change seven things and holding all that in your head can literally like you know enlarge the size and 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 uh, create you know different ways of thinking and so it actually becomes even more important to do something different after because you what you don't want to freeze there like you don't want to you know do something complex and then freeze in that complexity because that really limits your vision you know like now all of a sudden i've taken like all this brain resource and i've directed it one way mm-hmm yeah, you're going to want to, you know, if you're if you're doing like you know worker placement, if you're doing like a euro thing, uh, you're going to want to, you know, like shift shift gears a little bit. And so, like even somebody like Vitala Serta, who's known for like kind of like the you know heavy euros, like he makes a big deal about doing different, like radically different themes every time, and doing a lot of like speed work and research based on his theme. So like he'll do huge research on Lisboa. Uh, that game is actually really good at uh, you know representing the rebuilding of Lisboa after the earthquake, uh, and like has a lot of little spade work in there. And then you, you go to a game like CO2 or on Mars and spade work and research. And even though it's all heavy Euro family, 
it's the vibe is different and the pathways are different. And that's how he works out, you know, his own creativity. So even within the same genre, you can, as long as you're doing, you know, different themes or saying different things in your game, you can, you know, keep flexible and keep that neuroplasticity going. Definitely. Right. Well, and one thing I've learned is when I get deep into researching a topic or a, a theme or something like that, I find all these really interesting ways to bring it out. Right. Whereas if I had just troped it over, if it was like, okay, it's the old West, therefore we're going to have, a, you know, this, that, and the other. Well, I, I missed some really cool moments that I could have like leaned in has these like creative avenues that people hadn't seen before because people don't want to do the research. They don't want to do the, I've said this before, like the stats on, I give you stats on podcasting. I was talking to a guy today who wants, he wants to start his own uh, podcast and, and game related. And so I was chatting with him, just trying to give him some feedback and encouragement, whatever. And I looked up the stats. I hadn't seen him in a while and they're actually worse than they used to be. Um, 90% of podcasts don't make it past like episode eight. And then 90% of those that do make it past eight, don't make it past 20. So as soon as you get to episode 21, you're in the top 1% of all podcasts ever. Like 21, like that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like people don't want to do the work. We're lazy. We we, we want to give up. We, you know, we don't see instant results. We quit. <laughs> and so success can come in doing just a little bit extra and going deeper, learning some things, finding interesting, creative ways to to present the same story that's been told a million times. Yeah, but how could you tell it differently? You know, if you do a deck builder, maybe you draw seven cards. Maybe it doesn't have to be five every time. Like it doesn't even <laughs> have to be theme. Like it'd be mechanism, you know? And right. a lot of people have made good money designing games that are the same, but the differences in their worker placement system or whatever makes people go, ooh, I understand it because I've done this kind of game before, but that's different. That's an interesting way to do it. And all of a sudden it opens up these different, you know, strategies and creative options and things like that for the actual gameplay. So, you know, not just theme, but also mechanism. But like you're saying, at the same time, it's, it's making your brain bigger. So I, I feel like there's, there's almost no downside to a lot of this stuff, uh, except but for the time. Only downside it is going to take extra risk, right? I mean, the, it, it's, it's very easy. Like again, like, like, the creative process is easy and a lot of ways consumer buying habits are also tropey too. Right. And we, we, you know, we, we, someone comes on, they log on, they want to see a big burly orc with an ax and like, okay, like dungeon crawler. They want to see, you know, a dour man staring across the distance Euro. They want to, and, and there's a, there is a familiarity there. And so I can see where people are like, you know what? I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. Again, like you said before, we have to make payroll. We have to, you know, do things. So it's like, like, so the gravity towards same old, same old is very, very strong. Um, but uh, when you can bust through, when you can do your wingspan, which is a creative project, when you can do your, uh, you know, game from left field that hits, then it's almost like you're reeducating our community brains. You know, we didn't think that a game like Wingspan, like the whole hobby, none of nobody in the hobby thought a game like Wingspan could be successful. And then all of a sudden Wingspan shows up and it's almost like like a community neuroplasticity hit where it's like, oh, now we could do all these games. Now you got Castadia. Now you got like apiaries coming soon from Stonemaier. And now you like, you know, a whole field of vision kind of opened up. 
And that couldn't happen if we didn't have the openness to, you know, something that was a little bit different. It's, you know, making an aviary vertebrates. Uh, right. So, you know, that that's the cut. So those are a little bit more moonshotty. Like, you know, for every one of those is going to be, you know, 10, 20 on the cutting room floor of like, okay, this is the, the, the community is not going to buy this. So there's a risk aversion that sets in. That's, that's a big thing I encounter in cultural consulting of like, no, we don't want that. We want something that the, the community is going to, uh, going to like. And so there's two answers to that. One, you know, like not every one of your safe products is going to be great either. Like you might have a slightly bigger chance of hitting, but you know, you're going to get, now your risk can get lost and see of like the other 10,000 things that you're doing. So that's number one that, you know, incentivizing you take a risk. Number two, even if you do the same old thing, maybe there's a different way to do the same old thing. Maybe there's a, a little curveball that you can put in. Uh, one of my favorite games over the last couple of years was the Transformers deck building game. Uh, and it's a deck building game and you draw five cards and uh, you do your deck building things. The innovation in that game is the the market where you buy the cards is actually, they call it the matrix and you have standees, you're walking on the cards. So, you know, if you want a card, you really have to get your, your generate some move with your cards and then walk, walk, walk to the next card and buy that card. And they were able to kind of make this really cool, like, you know, Op Optimus Prime running past Megatron and, you know, like, you know, ducking through and, you know, hiring, you know, Grimlock and everything. And they were able to kind of use the familiarity of buying cards from a market, but give it this little spin. Was it successful? I mean, it's, that game happens to have a little bit of mechanical crunch things that are difficult, but it stayed with me. At the very least, that game stayed with me, and I pull it out. I barely pull out it. I'm a reviewer. I, I review new games all the time, but like I, that's a game that stayed with me, and I pull it out. I want to play this again. One of the few, just because it did something different. Right. That's a really great way to look at it. How can you take something that is tried and true, so to speak, but then turn it on its head? You know, where it's not just a market where you buy whatever card is out there. No, no, you have to land on the card. Now it's part of the gameplay. Now it's part of the mechanism to be able to buy. It. Again, it's, it's wonderful. And we've seen over the years so many interesting mashups of things that maybe on its surface, someone would have gone, nah, it wouldn't work. But then somebody figured it out. You know, Gloomhaven, in a lot of ways, is a very Euro game that is also a dungeon crawler. It's like, huh, uh, that did okay. It's, uh, it's done all right. And so, you know, just finding ways to, again, think outside the box, be intentional, be creative. Right, and speaking Which of that, I feel like there was a game released by Czech Games that we mentioned about uh, so that's his imprint, but it was a game that he signed called Adrenaline, which was a first-person shooter Euro game. And it was a solid game, but it didn't hit. And, you know, it was like, it just kind of like came and went, but I appreciated the effort, you know? And so it's like, okay. And I bet like, you know, Vlada and the people that are developing games, they appreciate the effort. They're like, okay, we gave this a shot. And okay, uh, you know, things learned and, you know, uh, we, we went left and now we can kind of like learn for the next one. And they ended up with a hit with Arnak and that, you know, more miss and hit and miss and hit. And then, and that's, that's the, that is the creative process. And I really, I, I've learned to value the misses and also the hits and kind of, and use those as learning experiences too. Right. But it also depends on what success is. I love adrenaline. I think it's one of the better games ever made, like overall, like it's somewhere in the top 500 for me. And I think that's another thing that you you have the potential for. Okay, you might take a risk. It might not be this mass market viral sensation, but I think you have a better chance of it, like you're saying with Transformers, of it being remembered, of, of a certain group of people that you that, that you were aiming at, that whatever demographic you were going for, that goes, ooh, I like this a lot. And all of a sudden it becomes their favorite game. So maybe it didn't sell a million copies, 
but it's still kind of cool as a designer to create a game that's someone's favorite game or one of their top 10 favorite games of all time. Like that's a really cool moment too. And I think taking some risks, pushing some boundaries, doing some things that are kind of outside the norm, that's the way to do it. Otherwise, what's, what's the old saying? It's like, oh, this is another soulless Euro. It's another another Euro game that has some whatever mechanism. It's all brown and beige, everything. And it's named after some city in Europe. Cool. And we forget it 15 minutes later. Versus a game that people latch on to and they go, I love this. I, you know, it's almost like the cult classic, like the movies that came out back in the day. We don't really have that anymore, man. Cause you don't have like the DVD sales and stuff. Now it's all streaming. Yeah. But- and, and, uh, all the movies are made by AI now. So that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> have somebody out there talk about the lack of creativity and AI and all that. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Jason, this has been excellent, man. Anything you want to leave listeners with, or, or do you want to share about your game? Are you allowed to talk about your game that you yeah, signed? Yeah, yet? yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's public knowledge. Um, so, okay. Uh, I was signed by the Tessa Collective, me and my co-designer, Greg Loring Albright. We are making a card game based on the textbook by Howard Zinn called The People's History of the United States. Uh, it is an alternative history textbook, uh, alternative to the normal textbook where it talks about, you know, presidents. And not the, like alternative Cthulhu. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's not like, a, you know, <laughs> Dracula is America, whatever. Um, I need to come with a different cat, uh, catchphrase. Uh, but it is not a, it is not a textbook about uh, – or it's not a game and not a subject material about, like, presidents and powerful people and magnates. And it's about – it's a game about the strikes and the protests and the rebels and, you know, all the, all the people uprising and resisting and struggling as power. So we're making a card game, and it's coming along. And we, we've had it for like a year and a half now, and you know how this goes. Even a simple game, you know, we, we want to like – really the, the challenge here is to make it – make sure it says the right thing. You know, like there's a lot of – like there's a lot of ways to kind of say not the right thing <laughs> or say just something like so funky and people kind of like eh, – it, it doesn't uh, resonate with people. But we wanted to make a game that feels like you are, you know – Gathering together, um, you know, the forgotten bits of history, your Harriet Tubman's and your John Browns, and you know, and, and really, you know, uh, you're struggling against like empire, and you're struggling against the establishment, and and doing that in the format of a card game. So that's that's taken a lot of time, and you know, I've definitely um, learned that I don't want to design. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd be the primary design. I love being like a, the assistant person, uh, but no, I, I'm I'm having I have a lot of fun. Whether just kind of like you know, with the I'm learning a ton. You know, I'm learning a ton in this experience, and it's I feel like it's made me a better reviewer. I feel like it's made me a better gamer and a, a better teacher of games. Uh, the process of like actually making one. So highly recommend to do at least once. You know, do something do something with detail. Like do do you know make, design a game, uh, write a book. Uh, do a like a, a blow it out piece of art, like you know, write a poem, like a you know, a, a thick one, like like create and do something substantial with it. And your like the the neuro benefits are just off the charts. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Well, I hope I hope the game comes together. I know how hard it is to make a game in general, but especially one that the onus is on you to to tell the whole truth in that kind of situation. Like you can't abstract out and then make it, Oh, it's fantasy pirates. Like, no, no, this is based on real life events. Right. And that's a, that's a hard thing. And, and it takes so much more detail work and you just got to dive into all the research and all that. So yep. I hope you all are. I love Greg. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's an excellent designer. And so you, you're at least partnered up with an excellent dude. And I hope you're able to kind of pull it all together. And man, thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you very much.